Fun. That's great. The rest of you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to continue in our study of the Word of God. Here at Clayton Community Church, we put the Word of God in high esteem. We believe that God has spoken to us. He has given us His special revelation of His Word that teaches us all we need to know about salvation and how to live rightly. And so we turn to God's Word every week, hopefully every morning, every night, every day. And we're walking through the letters to the Corinthian church by the Apostle Paul. And this is the first letter that he wrote. Uh, it's taken us a couple weeks to get through the first couple chapters because Paul tends to shift gears quite a bit, which makes it difficult for curriculum and teaching. But he's speaking to the church about very important matters. And when he wrote this letter, a vast majority of this letter has to do with the many problems that he had heard that was coming out of this church at Corinth. That they were a troubled church, that there was many sins that were kind of swarming the church, that they were a divided church. But yet he begins his letter by greeting them as fellow saints and heirs of salvation. He considers them to be his brothers and sisters in Christ, despite their many faults. And as he first begins teaching, he talks about the divisions that are existing within the Corinthian church, because this is a big part of the problems that existed there, was their division. And he begins by explaining the fact that some of them say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Uh, I follow this guy, I follow that guy. This is my teacher, not that teacher. And so they were divided upon, upon the basis of theological teaching. And they were also probably influenced by the teaching of the world as well. And Paul makes mention of the fact that they were, most of them, immature believers. He says that not many of them were wise according to the wisdom of the day. Not many of them were powerful in um, in influence, not many of them were of nobility in their culture, but yet the power of God came to them and caused them to be saved. And this gives hope to all of us that no matter where you come from, no matter how intelligent you might be, a great thinker or, or not a great thinker you might be, no matter how much strength you have, no matter what class of a citizen in your country you are, that the power of the gospel can break down any wall and can change any life. You don't have to be a college graduate to understand the fact that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, and that God sent that Savior in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins, that all who believe and put their faith and trust in Him might be saved and have eternal life. You don't have to be a genius to understand that. We all have eternity in our hearts. We all know that there is something more than this life. And the gospel brings light to the fact that there indeed is. That God is our eternal God. And he is our savior who loves us. And he is good. And so, he starts with that point. But then he starts to shift gears. And that's what we're going to get into today is that there is a case and a time to indeed preach on mature matters. And he uses this to bring it back full circle 
to the fact that the church is not living up to our calling to be the church if we are divided amongst ourselves. And it's a sign of immaturity in a church when there's divisions or constant divisions. And so, if your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 6 together. Let's say a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for not leaving us here alone. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that all who believe have a counselor, have someone to remind us of your word, to give us insight and intuition into matters that pertain to this life and the next. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, for teaching us by your word and involving us in your work. So God, help us now as we study your scriptures. Help us to be enlightened to the truth. Help us to receive the vision that we need to carry out our calling in your name. Only you can give us that. Only by your spirit. Only by your word and truth. So Father, we ask for those things this morning as we fellowship together. May you draw us closer to you and to one another in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, continuing on in verse 6, Paul writes, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Let's take a look at that section together. And first, let's ask, who are the mature? What is the difference between the immature in the church and the mature in the church? Because he seems to be indicating that a majority of the Corinthian believers were immature, though not all of them. Because obviously there were some he was in dialogue with who were expressing the issues of the church to him out of concern. And so who are the mature? The Greek word there is teleos. And the mature are those who through the knowledge of God's word and indwelling of the spirit are totally and completely kingdom of heaven minded. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we look throughout the scriptures, wherever Paul or any of the other writers are talking about this mature kingdom of heaven mindset, they explain. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So it's this idea of transitioning from your old self into your new self and really coming to grips with what it means to be a child of God. I mean, have you ever sat in your hour of loneliness and, and wondered, what does it really mean that I'm a child of God? What does it really mean that I am saved from my sins, that I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ? What does that practically mean? for my life. Well, Paul explains it here, that it's forgetting your old life. That is what you once were. 
as he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, that at one time you were a murderer, you were a liar, you were a sexual pervert, you were all these other things, but that is what you were. But thanks to Jesus Christ and his saving grace, that that's not what you are anymore. You are his, you belong to him. You've been sanctified, you've been washed, you've been made clean and made new. And so that is the mindset once we come to that understanding of who we are in him. And that is the way the mature in Christ think. Now don't make the distinction between immaturity and lack of salvation. Because you can be immature in the faith and not really understand completely all that God has done for you or all that that really means for your life. And you can, if you got hit by a truck the next day, you would be in heaven. It's just like those who are wrestling with the idea of, well, the Bible calls me to be baptized. Uh, I should probably do that, but I don't really understand it. And as you're working through that, even if, if Christ has reached into your heart and has baptized you by his Holy Spirit and has caused you to be born again, and you're on your way to the baptism, and you should fall off a cliff or get eaten by a bear or drop dead from a heart attack, or do you want me to keep going all the ways you can die? Or COVID-19, which you have less than a 1% ch chance of dying from? Any of those things. And you would still be with him in paradise. You can be the thief on the cross, and all that you know is that this is the king of glory who's hanging next to me. And you can confess and believe in him on the spot. And if you die, Christ will say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So don't get confused about immaturity. Immaturity simply means you're at the beginning of your walk with Christ. And you don't quite understand fully what it means. But those of us who are mature, the way that we think is that we understand that we are a new creature. We are a new being. We've been made new by him, born again, made new. To the mature and kingdom-minded means that your heart and your mind, they've been transformed and are learning how to deny the flesh or to deny the temptations of the world. Those things which once grabbed so, hold of you so tightly. And you're not just a recipient of God's salvation, but rather you're an ambassador of heaven who operates according to God's will. In other words, you start to see that everything that you do is for the sake of God and his kingdom. And even if you're carrying out secular tasks, even if you're out in the world and you're working, you're always seeing things through the lens of the kingdom of heaven. You're wondering, what, what I say here, how is that going to impact God's kingdom and his mission and his ministry in my life? Once you become mature, that's how you start to think. And therefore, you start to watch your words and watch the things that you say. You start to be concerned about um, the perception of things. You don't want to give off the perception of evil, even if you're not actually doing evil. You just start to think about all these different things. How can I please God, but how can I be his ambassador here on, on earth? Consider what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. He says, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I want you to notice that perfect there uses the exact same word that Paul uses both in Philippians and Corinthians as mature. Coming into a fullness of maturity and understanding God's will and understanding righteousness and the weight of sin. That's what he means by be perfect. That we should strive towards such maturity, such perfection in him. And really, it's only the mature who can look at their enemy and their oppressor and have a heart of compassion towards such a person. Because the immature who is, who is being oppressed wants to strike back, wants to seek out revenge. But those who are mature, such as Christ, he understood very well that through the oppression of his enemies, through his crucifixion, that many would be saved. And if only we could have a mindset like that, that we could look beyond ourselves and our current situation and our suffering, and we could see the implications of what our suffering might be. And to ask ourselves, if my suffering means the salvation of even one person, is it worth it? And the mature who understands the gravity and the difference between heaven and hell must say yes. And if my suffering makes a difference in one life, then it's worth it. But the truth is, God doesn't put us through suffering for just one life. The ripple effect of a righteous person who suffers well goes well beyond one person and oftentimes into generations. Some of you maybe have been encouraged and inspired by the way people suffer. It, it's shocking to people because our natural response to suffering or oppression is to strike back. And it gets our flesh excited. We watch movies about it and we get really excited about these great stories of revenge. But we should be getting really excited about these stories of meekness, of a person such as Jesus Christ, who could have called down the angels of heaven to come and take him off that cross and to kill everyone there who is his enemy. Meekness means that Christ had the ability to come off that cross, but for our sake, he didn't. He had the strength, he had the wisdom, he had all that to come off that cross, but he didn't. And so maybe you're a great warrior, maybe you're a great fighter, maybe you're a great shot with your gun. But if God is calling you to stay your hand or to calm your strength or to silence your mouth, even though you have that perfect thing to say. That is the meekness of God. If you're doing that for the sake of the salvation and the redemption of other people, that is the maturity that God wants us to come into. That is when you've reached perfection or maturity. 
The mature can rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces fruit for the kingdom. And this was also the attitude of Paul. Paul tried to emulate the attitude of Christ in his own attitude. Colossians 1, 24 through 29, he writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature. There's that word again, teleos, in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So those who are called into maturity understand that along with that, if you're going to do the will and the work of God, that suffering will most likely, almost guaranteed, be a part of that process. But it's not suffering as the world suffers. It's suffering with joy and with hope, knowing that your suffering is producing fruit for the kingdom of God. And this is why Christ, he warns all who come to believe in him, they hated me, they will hate you. Because a dark, sinful, evil world hates light and it hates all things that are good. And when your light is shining brightly, it causes them to, to react and recoil from, from the blindness that they, they see of such brightness. And if they don't repent and turn from their sins and, and join the illuminated party, then they will ultimately turn and try and snuff out that light because it's offensive to them. And so if you're a believer, and we always tell people this whenever we're sharing the gospel, whenever people are coming to faith, we always tell people, you know, in terms of your, your joy and your hope uh, which, which are, and your love, all these things, yes, your life will improve, all, all those things. But it will probably get harder. Probably less people will like you. We try and be upfront about those things. We don't do a bait and switch because Christ was upfront about those things and so must we be as well. And so being mature understands that we will face certain suffering, but also understands that Christ will be with us through it. And that's the joy that overcomes our hearts, even in the face of suffering. So this kingdom-minded was ultimately rejected by the wisdom and the rulers of Paul's age. Because the wisdom of that age, as I mentioned last week, was very naturalistic. So everything that mattered was everything that you could see and touch that was here. It was very hedonistic. That pleasure was the highest uh, aim or the highest goal of mankind to maximize your pleasure. And it almost entirely focused on temporal outcomes, that what you achieved, what you earned, what you gained, that's what mattered. How much land that you owned, uh, how high up the ladder of your, your job that you went or your career that you went, all those things are all that mattered. How many toys you could accumulate, that's it. The world rejected this idea of glorifying losing everything and suffering. 
But ultimately, those who are kingdom-minded understand the value and understand, as Paul did, Paul longed to suffer like Christ did. He wanted to be like Christ in every way and even experience that suffering. Now, he didn't uh, oftentimes run into a situation uh, and, tr- and unnecessarily get himself to suffer. But he did go in very difficult situations because God called him to. And he answered the call. And he was fully w- aware that suffering would come his way. That he would nearly be stoned to death. That he'd be dragged in front of councils. That, that he would be uh, rebuked and chased out of towns. He knew that he would be abandoned even by his closest friends in ministry. He knew all that stuff. He would suffer in almost every way that you could suffer. And ultimately, as far as the records show, he was ultimately martyred and probably killed in a very similar way as Christ. But the world doesn't understand that. The world does not honor that. The world does not glorify that. But God honors that. God glorifies that. And all this is based upon the wisdom that has been given to us by the Spirit of God. And there's something strange, um, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but when I think about having the opportunity to die for the sake of Christ, or to die for the sake of my family, or my loved ones, and maybe this is true among men, women, maybe you feel the same way, but there's something within me that stirs up in excitement, that it would be an honor to die for the sake of the gospel, that it would be an honor to die for my family or for any one of you that you might live. And I think God, through the Spirit, He puts that into us, where before it's all about self-preservation. No, 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 I don't want to lose my estate. I don't want to lose my life. No, preserve it at all costs. But then to step into that realm of maturity where you welcome that if it comes your way. There's something about that. And so the Spirit of God is what gives us this revelation, what moves us into such maturity. And through the next verses here through chapter 2 and a little bit into chapter 3, Paul, I think, outlines and gives us um, seven uh, kingdom of God truths that are through the Holy Spirit. So let's walk through those together. Here in verse 9, here's the first one. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So the first truth about the kingdom of God and the Spirit of God and the wisdom of of, uh, Christians through the Spirit of God is that the previously hidden gospel is revealed through God's Holy Spirit. And to make this point, Paul quotes from Isaiah 64, verse 4. And he, if you look at that exact quote, um, he obviously did a paraphrase. It's not an exact uh, line-for-line quote. But he recognized that God um, was not only empowering him to know what God had prepared for all New Covenant believers But he also knew that God had chosen him to make these truths known to the church. And so even the prophet Isaiah, looking forward, understood that the truths of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit um, being given to believers was a mystery 
up until the time of Christ and up until the ministry of the apostles. But now was the time for that mystery to be revealed. And which is why we have the word of God as we do. The New Testament, Paul, Peter, uh, James, the apostles speaking to this mystery that had been revealed to them through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And so this revelation or the blessing that we have received of the revelation is of our salvation that was prepared by the Father, that was carried out by the Son, and is applied by the Holy Spirit into the life of every believer. Now, as we read through the book of Acts, we see that process take place. We see where the pouring out of the Holy Spirit occurred in the book of Acts. And we refer to that moment as the Pentecost. And so after Pentecost, after the Spirit of God is poured out on to all believers, uh, all who are born again by God receive the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit who will guide us in all truth, especially the truth of the gospel. John chapter 14, verse 26, Christ said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all that I have said. So the Holy Spirit is Christ in us and is given to every true believer upon conversion. So the moment that you confess and believe, not, not necessarily water baptism, though some people might simultaneously have that experience, but the moment you drop to your knees, you lift up your voice to heaven and give your life to him, then he gives you the deposit of the Holy Spirit. You are born again. You have Christ in you, Christ with you, who informs you of every decision that you make. And this is another aspect of coming into that place of maturity, that your body no longer belongs to you alone. There is no such thing as bodily autonomy when it comes to your faith in Christ. Why? Because you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as well. And therefore, all the decisions you make for your body, you need to be considerate of God's will for your life and the fact that he purchased you and purchased your body for his sake, for his purposes. So that means whatever you do, and, and the obvious correlation here, the obvious application is that if anybody uh, wants to do anything with your body, whether it's medically or whatever, uh, then you need to consider the Holy Spirit in that decision-making process. And consider the fact that the Holy Spirit will counsel you in what's right. And not everything is going to be the same for every single person. And we've seen that here with these vaccines. For some people, the vaccine might make sense. The vaccine might have even saved their life if they were to get COVID-19. But for a vast majority of people, it might not be the same. So the way God speaks to you about what to do medically might be different than what he speaks to you. You might be the same age, the same health, whatever. God might be speaking to you for reasons unknown. But as believers, we yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have to make sense to man. But rather, we stand upon the principle that God does indeed speak to believers through his Holy Spirit. And he won't speak to us in a way that is inconsistent with the scriptures. And so if anybody comes to you and says, the Holy Spirit is telling me to cheat on my wife and leave my wife for this person. Not true. That's not the Holy Spirit of God. That is an evil spirit. Because the Bible does not condone such activity. 
It condemns it. And so that's why it's so important that we study the Word of God and that we know it. Because they're one and the same. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, God the Father, they're one and the same. And they will not contradict each other. So if you're going to be led by the Spirit of God, that's why you know the Word of God. And remember the words of Christ. He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all that I have said to you. So there might be things that the Bible is not abundantly clear about. But those of us who are walking in step with the Spirit will be able to make discernment and have insight into making the right decisions for our life and for the life of our family if we're walking according to the Holy Spirit. The second thing we see is that the Holy Spirit searches everything. So the Holy Spirit is in every believer. This was a mystery that was revealed through Pentecost. But also we find out that the Holy Spirit searches everything. It says here, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also... No one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now, I don't want to delve too deeply into the nature or the essence of man or even the nature or the essence of God because these are conversations that we could have and would bend our minds all morning long, but we simply do not have the attention span uh, to go there this morning. But I do at least want to breach the surface because Paul is making this very important point. And so let's begin with God's nature. What does it mean that the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God? What does that mean? Well, as we understand from the Scriptures, the whole counsel of the Scriptures is that God's nature, He exists in three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet we also know from the whole council of, of Scripture that God is one. So what on earth does that mean? Three distinct persons, yet God is one. What does that mean? Each person being equally God? Well, consider the fact that God made you and me in His image and after His likeness. And so, therefore, in the same way, our essence, we are made up of a soul spirit, and flesh. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we consider our makeup and the fact that we were made in God's image, there's some similarities that can be drawn there. But we need to be very careful as we move forward in this discussion. Because God is always supreme to us. He is the creator. We are the created. He is always in every way greater than us. But yet we were made like God. And so when we consider the Father, the Father would very much be like the soul. In other words, the, the conscience, the, the will of, of, a, of a person, of an individual. We look at the Son. The Son obviously represents the flesh. Christ was God in the form of flesh. And then also the Holy Spirit, which obviously represents the Spirit. But yet when we think of God and we think of man, and we think of the triune nature of God, how God sent His Son 
to die on the cross, what are some of the things that Christ did when he walked on earth? Didn't he pray to the Father? Didn't he ask the Father for help and glorify and worship the Father? Well, how can that be? Or when Christ says here that he's going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, what, what is with that distinction? Now, scholars, Christians, uh, for centuries have been trying to wrap our minds around that. And the fact is, it's unfathomable. We've tried to use uh, examples. We've tried to use an egg to explain the complex triune nature of God. Uh, it falls way short. We've tried to use the three-leaf clover to explain it. We've tried to use math, one times one times one. To ex- but nothing on earth, there's nothing that exists that compares to the nature of God. We are the closest representative or example of God. And even further than that, marriage between a man and woman is an even closer representative. But even those fall way short of the nature of God. God is absolutely unique in his being. And therefore, he is the only one who exists in such a way as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God three distinct persons. And the way that we operate, yet even though we have flesh, we have spirit, we have a soul, our spirit, soul, and body are not distinct persons that can interact with each other in the same way that God and his distinct persons interact with one another. And if you're scratching your head and you're wondering what the heck is this guy talking about, Uh, read through your Bible. (laughs) Get to the sections that talk about uh, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It it is abundantly clear, and it has been to the church, that God exists this way according to the revelation of the Word of God. And so we believe it. By faith, we believe it. And in part, we are convinced because of the Spirit of God that when we read this, we study it, even though it's confusing to us, we worship God because the Spirit attests to the truth of God. So the nature of the Spirit, but what does connect us, even though we are different from God, ultimately, He is is superior to us, He is supreme. The Spirit of God, He has given us as a way for us to be in sync or connected with Him, to know His heart and His mind. Because after all, we are sinful creatures which He has redeemed and He has made possible for us to be able to have communion and fellowship with him. And the way that's possible is by his Holy Spirit given to us. So that way our spirit and his spirit ultimately become one. We don't become God. We don't become greater than God. But rather we become one with God and his will and his purposes. Lesser than God, but one with God in our mindset. Okay, so go home and study that out for yourself. Number three, the Spirit helps us understand God's truth. God will help you understand these things. God will walk you through these things as you grow, as you study His Word, as you get together with other believers and you you wrestle with this stuff and you debate about this stuff and you open the Scriptures. Well, what what about that? Well, what about that? Uh, I don't think it's either or. It might be both and. I don't know. And and you, you just work together. That's iron sharpening iron. That's what fellowship is supposed to do. Bring us to a greater understanding of God. But the Spirit of God helps us understand God's truth as we walk with Him in our journey. Verse 12, 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So we have access to the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And though we cannot become equal to God and operate as three distinct persons, as I mentioned, through the work of the Son, we have been given the Spirit, and therefore we can sync up with God in His mind, discover His heart and His mind. And this is what Jesus meant when He said that in that day, you will not know, or excuse me, uh, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He says this in John 14.20. And then later in this letter, Paul writes, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Acts 2.38, likewise, he says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Those who step forward in obedience, in genuine faith, will receive the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you stepped forward in obedient faith in Him? Are you still running from Him? Do you still have uh, intellectual walls that you have put up that prevent you from stepping out in faith and truly following Him? Do you have the Holy Spirit within you? The counselor who has opened up your mind to the mind of God. If not, I would encourage you to tear down those barriers and step out in faith and confess and believe in Him for salvation, but also for the gift of the Holy Spirit who will be your counselor, your comforter, and your help through all of life's troubles. And I was just talking with uh, Jim this morning. We were talking about how um, later on in life, how our health starts to fail and how you start to feel more constant pain in multiple different areas. And it, it all becomes at some point about pain management where you're always feeling pain and that's the secret to your success, but that you're, you're able to uh, key in or focus on one pain or another pain and not all the pain. And then not to mention when you get older, you start to lose all your friends and your family. They pass on. They leave you here alone and you're mad at them for going first. And you feel the, the, the social and the emotional pain as well. And so just as you get older, the pain starts to increase in, in all different areas. And so you have to manage your pain. And I couldn't imagine going through that process without my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by my side, walking with me through all of life's cares, helping me to deal with the pain, and in some cases, miraculously healing from the pain. And we have prayed for, for multiple people in this church, and we have seen God's miracles work. I went to visit Mike in the hospital this last week, and, and that guy's a, a walking miracle. Well, right now he's laying down, but he's a laying miracle because he flatlined four times in his life. The first time he flatlined, he should have been dead. God spared him. Why? Well, because later on he would come to a knowledge and a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's why. But after that, recently, he flatlined three times because total kidney failure, all that kind of stuff. And, and as a church, we rallied together, we prayed for Mike, and he came out of it. 
and he's having more complications. And we're praying for him and we're, we're with him. But you know what's awesome about Mike? Is when I first met Mike, he looked me in the eyes and he said, I hate God. And then he came to saving faith in God. And as he was wrestling with this faith that he had, he still feared death. He wasn't really sure about the process of death. And he feared death. And even when he'd uh, get heart trouble and stuff like that, he would be really scared. Like really, really scared. And part of that had to do with leaving his family. But I think he was also scared about that process and what that meant. Well, when I went to visit him this last time, he shared with me, you know, Craig, it's, it's a miracle because I'm not scared anymore. I feel a total peace. And that's something brand new. And that's part of the blessing of having Christ in your life and the Holy Spirit within you. Is that these normal things of life that can make us crazy or bring us down to our knees, don't do that anymore. We're not drawn to sin and we're not devastated by those things anymore. He is the King of glory, the King of our hearts. Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Also, our worry about what to say goes away anymore. Praying. A lot of new believers are very scared to pray, especially in a public setting. And oftentimes, I've, when someone really steps out in faith and just, on the, according to the Holy Spirit, just opens their mouth and prays, some of those are the, the most amazing prayers I've ever heard. People just honest with God, you know, speaking the truth of God through the Holy Spirit. And so we don't worry about what we say, but we do guard our tongue. We don't want to speak according to the flesh. Number four, the Spirit unites believers in truth, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So there's this spiritual impartation that happens, uh, teaching and learning that happens. Uh, Jesus said in John 4.23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so what this means is that when we come together as believers, and as we're lifting up songs of praise to him, and I want to thank the worship team for leading us in those wonderful songs today. You know, the, I believe today was a special hymn Sunday. And it, I love the old hymns because they, they always tell the story of the gospel throughout. You know, some of the modern songs can drive me nuts. They just repeat two lines the whole time and, you know, go crazy and dance around and stuff. And, but I like the theological truth that's presented by the hymns, and I'm glad that we sing them here at this church. But we lift up songs of praise to God. We publicly read scripture together. We share testimonies with one another of what God has done and is doing in our lives. And in these moments that we come together, our spirits are in sync with one another because it is the same spirit within you that is within me. It is the spirit of God. And there's a supernatural event that takes place when we come together 
in common faith and worship him in spirit and truth. And this is what Paul meant, I think, when he said to the believers at Rome, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That's why it's so important that we not neglect meeting together uh, often, as often as we can. Not legalistically, not if somebody misses one Sunday, you come bang down their door and say, you missed a Sunday, you sinner. No, but that we are, we are committed, at least in most part, to coming together as often as we can to sing his praises, to study his word, to proclaim his word together, to share testimony, to fellowship, to help each other. Because when we do these things, and we are growing closer together in spirit and we are being encouraged and strengthened together. Part of the Christian maturation process is being a part of a local fellowship. I can't express this enough. God gave us the church for this purpose. He gave us the Holy Spirit and he gave us the church. And both of these are meant to help you be strengthened in your faith and grow in your faith. And if you are neglecting meeting together, you are not going to grow. You're going to grow stagnant. You're going to be lukewarm. And you might even fall off the track entirely. I've seen all those things happen. But when we're together and we're working through our issues, then God is growing us up together in him. Number five, let's move through these last three. Those without the Spirit are disconnected. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the believers, the unbelievers who don't have the Spirit of God cannot understand the things of God, especially in terms of the supernatural. When you talk about the fact that Christ came and he died on the cross and he had to die to cover our sins as atonement, all that is folly to the world. They're like, that makes absolutely no sense. When you talk about God and his nature, that he is one, but he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that makes no sense to the world. They reject it. They're like, that's, that's fantasy. That's bizarre. When you talk about the fact that Christ is coming back to bring the church with him to heaven, that he's going to judge the world, and that heaven goes on for all eternity, and that we will be with him, that's foolishness to the world. They can't understand it because the supernatural is discerned by the Spirit. And so those without the Spirit of God do not understand or accept, but reject those things. And this is why the Bible calls us to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And of course, yoking has to do with uh, plowing a field with oxen. You know, they put that yoke, that wooden yoke across the top of two ox or whatever animal they're using. And so God says not to be in a, in a deep, intimate relationship with others who are not um, believers or have the Spirit of God, especially in the context of marriage. Uh, who, whoever you agree to spend the rest of your life with should be a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, many people come to faith in Christ individually, and their spouse does not. The Bible has... Uh, has instructions for that as well. That you don't leave your spouse, but you live for Christ. 
And if they should choose to believe as you believe, then great. You have influenced them in a positive way and they will believe. But if they get sick and tired of you, you know, that Christian, that prudish Christian, you were once so much fun and now you go to church all the time and now you're studying the Bible all the time. You're not partying with me anymore. You're not doing all these things with me anymore. You're no fun anymore. And if they decide to leave you, the Bible says, let them go. So, but don't divorce your spouse because you become a believer. If you're already a believer, if you're not a believer, you become a believer and you're already married, stay with your spouse. But if you are a believer and you are not married, you should only consider as your future spouse those who are also born again and who have the Spirit of God. The closest friends that you have as a believer primarily should be those that you fellowship regularly in a local setting. Obviously, we'll have other believers across the world. The church is not limited to just Clayton community. The church is global. Anywhere where believers are assembled, that is the church. But this is why we're called not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because those without the Spirit do not understand the Spirit of God. They are not in step with God. And it will be counterproductive to your faith and to the will of God in your life. Number six. The spiritual person has the mind of Christ. The spiritual, spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So this means that we're being sanctified by Christ. We're, we're thinking according to the name of Christ, not just his name, Jesus, but the person and the attitude and the behavior and the will of Christ. The spiritual man cannot, can only be judged by God himself. The world cannot judge the believer or the, even the immature believer. This is why Paul is writing the Corinthians, the letter. So to have the mind of Christ is to be obedient to God's revelation and uh, just as Christ demonstrated for us. Number seven, lastly, the spiritually mature won't be divided. And so here he comes full circle for us. He began back in chapter 1, and now he's finally bringing it full circle. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not spiritual food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So here he comes full circle, and he uses this analogy of milk and solid food. The problem with the Corinthian church is that a vast majority of them were still immature and were still on milk. But he was calling them to pursue maturity, to pursue solid food, solid word of God, to, to, move, to move on from the simple yet powerful gospel of Jesus saved you. They, they had accepted that. They loved that. And they've fallen into a hyper grace position where God's grace is given to us. God is gracious to us. We can continue doing whatever we want. It doesn't matter. That's a milky, milky theology. But a solid food theology moves beyond that and understands that we are called into righteousness. We are called to no longer be divided, 
to be jealous of one another, to be petty about all these little differences that we might have, but rather we're committed to being the body of Christ, united as one and just as the Father and the Son are one, God is calling for the church to be united in our purposes. And so at Clayton Community Church, my hope and my prayer is that as all of us are in different, I want to say, stages of our, of our salvation walk with God, some of you might be freshly uh, new believers and you're still trying to work out what that means to you, what, what that means to your life. Some of you might be mature. You've been believers your whole life. You're ready to die for him. You're ready to do whatever it takes. You're ready to follow him anywhere. That you're, you've wrestled with a lot of these doctrines. You've, you've worked through them. As we're all working together here in this church to pursue Christ and the will that he has for our lives, we must do it in unity and together. Because if we're divided, if there's factions... That's the first sign that we are an immature church. But if we're together, that means that we're doing his will and we're doing what's right. And so I just want to encourage you to stay committed to your walk with him. Stay committed to the, the fact that you are not like when you, you once were. You are a different creature in him. He has is, he is made you to be born again. And that together we are striving towards Christian excellence, towards righteousness together. So let's stay committed to that together. Let's stay committed to meeting together as often as we, as we can without being legalistic about it. I think in doing that, we'll please him. We'll be doing what's right. I don't want to receive a letter from somebody like the Corinthian church got from Paul. Okay, this is, hopefully this is preliminary to prevent us from becoming like a Corinthian church. Okay, I've kept you here long enough. It's hot. We're tired, right? Let's, uh, let's pray, and you're welcome to join us for soup and further fellowship together. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious thing it is to be your church, to be your children, to be called to be ambassadors for your kingdom. God, I pray that you would help us all to enter into that maturity that Paul's talking about, that knowing that we have your spirit with us, we can grow in confidence and grow in faith. So be with us as we leave here today. Help us to not forget who we are. And help us to feel like pilgrims in an unholy land as soon as we leave the, uh, this place. But help us to remember that you love the world. That you didn't abandon the world. That you came to die for the world. And so help us to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>